Previously on Flying the Line, with ample resources hidden in Continental Airlines' parent company, Texas Air Corporation, Lorenzo files for bankruptcy. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA is pilot-led and staff-supported, and volunteer opportunities for pilot leaders and subject matter experts are at an all-time high. Training is available for many of the positions, so reach out to your MBC leaders and see where you can contribute. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, a bridge from the book, Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 13, The Origins of the Continental Strike. Lorenzo Prepares His Blitzkrieg, Part 2. The International Association of Machinists Workers at Continental Airlines struck on August 13, 1983. Continental's pilots honored their contract and continued flying, largely because CEO Frank Lorenzo threatened to take the airline into bankruptcy. Immediately upon seeing that the pilots and flight attendants would cross the IAM's picket lines, Lorenzo pushed his psychological advantage by demanding further concessions. While not refusing Lorenzo's demands outright, the pilots wanted him to at least prove his financial need. For months, they had asked him to open the books and agree to joint meetings with the airline's lenders. Lorenzo eventually did open his books, but he steadfastly refused to permit joint meetings between his debt holders and the union. Lorenzo's resort to bankruptcy followed a precedent set by Universal Airlines to break its ALPA contract in 1971. As tensions with the IAM mounted, Lorenzo hired a law firm that specialized in bankruptcies to take Continental into Chapter 11. This action would permit Lorenzo to not only suspend payments on his debts, but to break his unions as well. During the prolonged maneuvering of 1983, Continental's pilots found out that the Texas International pilots weren't exaggerating about Lorenzo. He reneged on Prosperity Plan 1 almost before the ink was dry and demanded Prosperity Plan 2, which involved further concessions. Continental MEC Chair Larry Baxter stalled Lorenzo's demands from January to August 1983. Meanwhile, Lorenzo attacked the flight attendants and mechanics, finally provoking the IAM strike. A critical decision now faced the Continental Pilot Group. Should they cross the IAM's pickets, or should they be good labor unionists? ALPA President Hank Duffy conducted roadshows urging the pilots to honor the picket lines, to no avail. The Continental Pilots' decision had to do with the IAM's history of internal unity in strike situations. Historically, the union had not been able to control its own membership. Many Continental Pilots felt that the strike at their airline would see large numbers of crossovers among the mechanics and that the IAM was a very weak ally in a critical situation, a point with which Hank Duffy could only agree. Duffy, mindful of this IAM trait, certainly was not as forceful in his roadshow advice as he could have been. 
the Continental Pilot Group had a history of crossing other unions' picket lines, but this time it was a very close decision, made with grave misgivings and at the price of much internal distress. From the beginning of the IAM strike on August 13th, Continental's Alpha MEC was in almost continuous session, dealing with a series of emergency demands from management. Then, on September 11, 1983, under the signature of Continental President Stephen Wolfe, an apocalyptic telegram went out to all Continental pilots over the head of the MEC with hand deliveries to Alpa's national officers. Wolfe demanded an additional $60 million in pilot givebacks, all or nothing, over the previously negotiated $100 million. Wolfe indicated that the airline needed to further contain its costs and that current market prices were being set by Southwest Airlines, which was trying to drive Continental out of market after market. At this point, Continental's pilot leaders, fearing for their airline's future, were in the same kind of whipsawed state that Lorenzo had previously induced among TXI's pilots. The pilots were divided, some urging surrender while others wanting war. MEC Chair Larry Baxter wanted nothing further to do with Lorenzo. He became moody and uncommunicative, leaving the negotiating committee adrift. Meanwhile, Lorenzo kept pressing. He set a deadline of 4 p.m. on Saturday, September 24, 1983, for the pilots to capitulate. Either they would abandon their contract, or he would file for bankruptcy. The astounding thing about the 1983 Continental Strike is that the pilots did capitulate. During frantic negotiations that began with the IAM strike and intensified meetings in September, brought on by Lorenzo's threat to file for bankruptcy, the negotiating committee publicly committed Continental's pilots to do whatever it takes to save their airline. The white flag was up, but Lorenzo, already secretly committed to his bankruptcy strategy, would take no prisoners. Instead, he used the trumped-up excuse of Larry Baxter's lack of formal communication with him to reject the pilot's offer. Although Baxter argued that the pilots had a valid contract and didn't need to negotiate further, Continental's negotiating committee thought otherwise. Baxter did not participate in the late September round of negotiations, and during a meeting in Houston on September 23rd, the company's negotiating team accused the pilots of a refusal to participate, citing Baxter's absence. For the negotiators, the only real question was how to implement the concessions Lorenzo wanted and what technical steps had to be taken to insert them into their existing contract. The historical record is clear and unequivocal on these points. Lorenzo had no intention of agreeing to anything. He had already decided to take his airline into bankruptcy. He wanted a blank check from his pilots instead of a contract, and he expected them to keep flying. In short, evidence shows that Larry Baxter was absolutely right. No amount of good-faith bargaining would have deterred Lorenzo. During one frantic session preceding the strike, Stephen Wolfe, the Lorenzo lieutenant who would later become United's boss, did something remarkable. 
The pilots were in the room negotiating when Wolf walked in and asked the group to take a 10-minute recess. Wolf then announced that he had resigned from Continental, adding that he didn't want to be part of this debacle. Seth Rosen, the ALPA staff lawyer assigned to Continental, called it a case of Wolf jumping ship before Lorenzo pushed him. Rosen admitted the ALPA team had confidence in Wolf, and once he was out of the picture, Lorenzo would stop at nothing to break the contract. The Continental pilot negotiators, flabbergasted at this turn of events, nevertheless continued good-faith bargaining. It all came to a head in one final bizarre episode. Lorenzo demanded that Baxter personally respond to his specific demands by phone no later than 4 p.m. on Friday, September 23rd. Under severe stress, and at the urging of his negotiating committee, Baxter finally did make the call only to be told it was too late. He had missed Lorenzo's deadline by a few minutes. At 6.30 p.m. on September 24, 1983, in the dry technical language of law, Continental filed for reorganization under Chapter 11 of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code in Houston. Throughout the United States and overseas, Continental's video terminals went blank and flights were canceled stranding stunned passengers and crews alike. Coming hard on the heels of Braniff's 1982 bankruptcy, Continental's actions seemed to foreshadow the doom of an industry. Continental's pilots were shocked, full of disbelief and anger. Everybody wanted answers, but nobody had any, as confusion reigned. Lorenzo, simultaneously with his bankruptcy petition, announced Continental's new emergency work rules, which would replace ALPA's contract. The new rules called for drastic 50% pay cuts, increases in duty time, and out-of-seniority flying. Through the weekend, Continental's pilots held mass meetings, anxiously awaiting the word from their MEC and ALPA's national officers. On September 26th, following consultations with ALPA's attorneys, Continental's pilot leaders declared that their existing contract remained in effect. What should line pilots do then with respect to the company's limited out-of-seniority callback? In what everybody later agreed was a mistake, Continental's MEC, operating in conditions approximating the fog of war, told pilots to return to their aircraft under duress. During the 72-hour shutdown, Lorenzo had restructured his airline to cover only about 40% of the pre-bankruptcy operation. He offered outrageously low $49 fares to all destinations to entice customers back to Continental and recalled pilots to suit his needs, not the contracts. The few pilots who were recalled following the 72-hour shutdown were justifiably conflicted. Many would not come out. On September 29th, an emergency meeting of ALPA's executive board convened in Houston. United's Chuck Pierce, ALPA's secretary, announced that the meeting was closed to the news media. Hank Duffy took the podium to preside over one of the tensest meetings in ALPA's history. Significantly, his first action was to recognize the presence of Captain Bob Malone of American, 
who was formally representing the Allied Pilots Association. The industry's crisis, building since deregulation, had brought the APA home, if only temporarily. Duffy warned that the crisis in the airline industry, as evidenced by Frontier's threat to create an alter-ego airline similar to New York Air, Eastern's ongoing problems, and the situation in Houston, was starting to engulf the pilots. For five years, ALPA had been complaining about deregulation. In April, the association told Congress that the industry was unraveling. In September, this testimony had become prophecy. The nation's airline pilots had been too understanding, too trusting, and most of all, too patient, and were going to have to stand up and act like a labor union if they were going to save the industry. Hank Duffy's charge to the executive board struck a responsive chord following presentations from the MEC chairs of each of the three most threatened airlines, Larry Baxter of Continental, Wes Davis of Frontier, and George Smith of Eastern, the executive board delegates unanimously and virtually without discussion approved drastic measures. For Continental's pilots, ALPA would modify its strike benefit policy to pay each striking pilot an amount comparable to the salary Lorenzo was paying under his emergency work rules. Lorenzo proposed to decrease the compensation called for in the Continental contract, paying captains $3,585 per month and first and second officers $2,335 per month. Subsequent to approval by a mail ballot of the membership, with immediate loans that would be wiped out once the vote was official, striking Continental captains would receive $3,800 per month, while first and second officers would receive $2,500 to be paid for by special strike assessments the membership would vote to impose upon itself. With extraordinary strike benefits approved, the balance of the executive board's work was devoted to a discussion of a possible suspension of service, or SOS. Under the direction of TWA's Harry Hoaglander, the executive board approved an SOS, but only with a member ballot and only after suitable education of the membership. Nobody wanted to call another SOS and then have it fizzle. Addressing the delegates, Hank Duffy said that while he was occasionally soft-spoken, it didn't reflect the anger he felt at the management of Continental and an unresponsive government. Duffy added that he would not hesitate to use the full force of the actions he had been authorized to take, including the SOS. Duffy added that if ALPA's membership could have heard Moffat Tinsley's remarks that day, he had no doubt that the association would march 34,000 strong in the same direction. Tinsley, a Continental pilot since 1968 and a first officer representative on the MEC, had moved the executive board delegates, not with bombast, but with sober, honest confession and a call for renewal that was almost religious in its intensity. With eloquence and passion, Tinsley summed up what being an airline pilot meant to him. He said that he had never wanted to be anything else, and that he prized being part of the Alpa Brotherhood above all.
Then, with great contrition, Tinsley noted that he had betrayed that brotherhood during the Braniff bankruptcy, that his first reaction was to wonder if Continental would pick up Braniff's South American routes and whether this addition would make him a captain. Tinsley's frankness pulled at the heartstrings of the group, and his call to redeem the profession, which had been handed to them by their association forebears who had sacrificed so much, provided a unifying theme. Airline pilots in general, and the Continental pilots in particular, would need stirring words like Tinsley's in the ordeal to come. On September 29th, the same day the executive board met, Continental's MEC voted to withdraw from service as of October 1st, 1983. The strike was on. Next time on Flying the Line, Continental's striking pilots fight back against Lorenzo. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 13, Part 2 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or find us on all major podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Lion podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright alpha 2023, all rights reserved.